It's Friday, June 4, 2010. Several students rush into their second grade classrooms as the bell rings at Skyline Elementary School in Portland, Oregon. The excitement can be felt in the halls as they've just attended their school science fair. The teacher takes attendance as she does every morning, but today there is one empty seat. Seven-year-old Kyron Horman is not in class today. The teacher has no idea that Kyron had actually come to school that day, that he had been at the science fair just moments before with all of his classmates, but unlike them, he never made it to class. The teacher thinks nothing of it, as she reportedly remembers his stepmother, Terry, had mentioned she was taking Kyron to a doctor's appointment. The last person known to have seen him was his stepmother, Terry Horman. She claimed she waved to the child as he headed towards his classroom. The child was never seen again. As the days and weeks tick by, and there still is no sign of Kyron, a mountain of suspicion builds against Terry, shoving her squarely into the spotlight. She fails multiple polygraph tests, and investigators suspect she may be lying to them. Rumors and accusations run rampant. Terry allegedly offered to pay her landscaper $10,000 to murder her husband, Kane, an accusation which she denies and has never been charged with. And her best friend, Dee Dee Spicer, is allegedly unaccounted for during the very same window of time that Terry doesn't have a solid explanation for on the day Carmen vanished. Of course, these claims have been nothing but speculative. But these allegations were so horrible, so disturbing, that Cain filed for a divorce and filed a restraining order for him and their two-year-old daughter, Kiara, against his partner of seven years. The Horman family has been ripped apart at the seams. The suburban family that was once considered seemingly normal has been exposed for living a life riddled with secrets, betrayal, and lies. Terry was ultimately outcast from her local community, and the dream she had of becoming a school superintendent had vanished along with Kyron. As Terry went to live with her parents in Roseburg, Oregon, the desperate search for Kyron continued. Despite several weeks of looking through dense woods and deep lakes, there was no sign of the child or his remains. But his mother, Desiree, refused to give up. She was calling for charges against Terry, and she knew they needed to find her son, dead or alive, in order for those charges to be brought. If we're not looking for Kyron, we're not going to find him. And if we can't prosecute Terry for this until we find Kyron, then obviously we need to find Kyron. As hundreds of volunteers, dozens of federal agents, and millions of dollars invested turned up nothing, Desiree Young took matters into her own hands. She filed a civil lawsuit against Terry to the tune of $10 million, accusing her of allegedly kidnapping Kyron, lying to state and federal authorities, and refusing to confess the location of his whereabouts or his remains. In this episode, we'll cover the events of the grand jury, official testimonies, new revelations into the ground search efforts, and the lawsuits against Terry from both Kane and Desiree. 
Lawsuits that ultimately changed the direction of the investigation and embroiled the Horman family into complete and utter chaos. This is Dr. Phil, and you're listening to Into Thin Air, The Mysterious Disappearance of Kyron Horman. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. Despite the media running wild with the evil stepmother angle, Terry Horman has never cracked. She insists that she has been telling the absolute truth from the beginning. She believes that she has fallen under suspicion simply because she was the last person to see Kyron. So she became the scapegoat because Kyron's parents, especially Desiree, needed someone to blame. She claims she never hated Kyron, and despite Desiree's claims that his stepmother resented the boy and wanted him out of the picture, Terry says that could not be further from the truth. I love Kyron. I've never hated a child in my life. I've never said that about a child. So anything that Desiree has said publicly, people just take what she says as being the God's truth, and it's certainly not. Uh, She can't produce one iota of evidence. Anything about Kyron or hating him, absolutely not. But despite her claims of innocence, many people just did not buy her story. The inconsistencies in her story kept coming back to haunt her. Terry told investigators that she dropped off the boy at the top of the staircase and saw him enter his classroom. Desiree, however, claims that this would not be possible because there's a wall that obstructs the view from the staircase to Kyron's classroom. But Terry says she didn't even know what she was saying in that moment. She wasn't lying, she was remembering as best she could while being in an incredibly difficult situation. I felt horrible. What am I supposed to, to say to this woman it's, it's, it's sitting in my house? I take you know, him to school and he's gone. What am I, how am I, what am I supposed to say to her? There, there's no words that I can do to make her feel better. I was trying to just let her know how much I love him. I just, I wanted her, I was trying to give her ownerships. why I said, I want you to know I love your son. That's what I was trying to do. Terry also claimed that that same morning from 1010 to 1139 a.m., she was driving in rural back roads around the city in order to calm her daughter from a numbing earache. Coincidentally, around this same time, her friend, Dee Dee Spicer, allegedly abruptly left a gardening job in Germantown on the other side of Portland and was allegedly picked up by someone unknown since her car was left behind in front of the homeowner's property. There was no evidence, no trace, and no surveillance footage of where Terry and Dee Dee were during that time. Dee Dee denies even leaving her job. But the person who hired her says he went looking for her and he was one. 100% certain Dee Dee was not there. 100% certain that she had left his property with someone else. Then, 
investigators discovered Terry's cell phone had pinged off a tower on Sauvie Island, 30 minutes north of Portland. Is that where Terry and Dee Dee could have taken Kyron during those mystery hours? That's what police were likely wondering as they searched the island and plastered flyers of Terry's truck and Dee Dee's face all over town. But still, neither woman was charged or named a suspect, nor was it ever confirmed that they were in fact together that day. Dozens of search teams and divers scoured the island's deep waters, but they found nothing. No Chiron, no clues. Terry claimed that investigators should be focusing less on her and start looking for the real kidnapper. Had a real suspect had time to get away and cover their tracks as the police focused on her, an innocent woman? Terry insisted they should be looking into a mystery man allegedly spotted the morning before Kyron disappeared. According to Terry, an unknown individual in a white Ford pickup pulled over to a 7-Eleven near Highway 30 and asked the clerk for directions to the nearest school. When the clerk replied it was Skyline Elementary, the man hopped back into the truck and drove off. Terry claimed she also saw a white Ford pickup the same moment she walked Kyron to his science fair. Could Kyron have been abducted by a stranger? Yes, some of Terry's actions look bad. But doing things that look bad doesn't automatically make you a child kidnapper or worse, a child killer. But there was a slight wrench thrown in Terry's mystery man in the white truck story. Another witness claimed to have also seen a man inside a white Ford pickup outside the school that day. Except they say the white truck he was sitting inside of belonged to none other than Terry. Armchair detectives went wild with this detail. No one could confirm whether Terry was alone with the children that morning or if another adult was with her in her car. Could the man allegedly spotted by a witness in Terry's truck have actually been Dee Dee Spicer, perhaps wearing something covering her head? Or was there another unrelated person searching for a child to take at the school that day in the busy and bustling drop-off hour where they could slip out unnoticed? None of these claims about another man at the school, in Terry's truck or his own, were ever substantiated. The police were still at square one. Because of the growing cost of the search effort, the sheriff's office received an enormous amount of pressure from both their superiors and the public to find some closure to this investigation. By November 2010, the search for Chiron had cost Oregon more than $1.4 million, a state record for a missing persons case, and not one step closer to finding this missing child. This money had gone to fund wide perimeter search parties, pay for additional out-of-state resources, and financing budgets for several departments, not to mention overtime hours, research, and more. Despite few clues, Desiree was 100% certain that Terry had allegedly either abducted her son or orchestrated his kidnapping. She made the point that if Terry could allegedly try to orchestrate a murder-for-hire plot against Kane, who is to say she couldn't pay someone to kidnap a child? Desiree had also come to the grim realization that her son could likely be dead. So she filed a lawsuit against Terry making those same claims. 
Terry just wrote off the lawsuit as the next move in a sick publicity stunt to paint her as the villain. At least that's the argument her defense lawyer, Stephen Howes, was trying to make. Stephen was an intense and high-powered defense lawyer. He's considered one of Portland's best, if not the best, criminal defense lawyer, who has a stringent reputation for being relentless in avoiding jail time for his clients. For any defense lawyer, it's not about proving someone is innocent. It's about proving they're not guilty. And those are two very different concepts. The burden was on the state. The burden was on the prosecutor. He did not have to prove that she was innocent. They had to prove she was guilty. And his singular purpose was to make sure that did not happen. He did not have to prove that Terry did not abduct Kyron or conspire in his disappearance, but to disprove the evidence brought forth by Kane and Desiree's lawyers, and that was a hill that seemed very surmountable because all the evidence was circumstantial. There was not one shred of physical evidence that connected her to the disappearance. There was simply no concrete evidence to indict Terry in any capacity for Kyron's disappearance. It's now July 13, 2010. Terry's attorney enters the courthouse and speaks with the judge to confirm that he will be representing Terry in court, as well as any legal proceedings regarding the Kyron investigation, as will defense attorney Peter Bunch. Afterward, during a press conference, he also informed reporters he would defend her against the slanderous and conspiratorial accusations leveled against her by the media, the public, and specifically Kane and Desiree, who he claimed had made it their mission, aside from finding the child, to see his client behind bars, despite zero evidence existing that she had anything at all to do with his going missing. After finding out that Terry had hired Stephen to represent her in court, Kane asked the judge to hold Terry in contempt of court for allegedly showing Michael Cook, an old friend of Kane's, and the man Terry was having an affair with, a sealed petition of his restraining order. If you remember, Michael Cook was the man that Terry had been sexting three weeks after Kyron disappeared. Because she was having an affair with him, she allegedly showed him sealed documents that were confidential in their divorce case. This was, of course, an attempt to derail Terry's defense in order to get her arrested as soon as possible. But with a high-powered defense attorney now on board, that was just unlikely to happen. Many critics have said that Terry lawyering up indicated she had something to hide. But when it comes to matters of law, it's quite the opposite. By hiring a lawyer, and not just anyone, but a highly recognized and esteemed lawyer, Terry was defending herself from a position in which she found herself innocent at every turn. When Kane's request for a contempt of court backfired, he attempted another strategy to obstruct Terry's legal defense. This time, it had to do with the judge looking into her financial statements at how she was able to afford her attorney services in the first place. According to jail records from a previous case of Stevens, he had charged the client a retainer of $250,000. Assuming he charged the same to Terry, it begged the question, how on earth was Terry able to afford a quarter of a million dollars? 
If you remember, from before Kyron disappeared, Terry was mostly a stay-at-home mom, often volunteering at Skyline Elementary. But while she wasn't at home raising three kids or volunteering at school, she was taking substitute jobs at other schools, like she did when she was getting her master's degree. It wasn't much, and it didn't happen often, but it still provided her with a small income, so she wouldn't have to be totally reliant on Kane. With a meager salary and dedicating most of her life in raising three children, It was truly mind-boggling how Terry was able to afford a lawyer that they assumed had a $250,000 retainer. Kane also felt that it begged the question, where would she have had $10,000 to pay someone to kill Kane? With Desiree, Kane, the public and the media beating her to a pulp, she was against the ropes and she needed a strong attorney to get her up on her feet. If Stephen Howes did normally have a quarter-million-dollar retainer, that would easily make him one of Portland's most expensive criminal defense lawyers. And fortunately for Terry, his record proved that his services were well worth the money. He had made a name for himself. After all, he spent his entire career beating the odds and defending high-profiled clients that surely were at risk of going to jail. For example, his past clients included Jaint Patel, Australia's Dr. Death, and terrorism suspect Mayor Mike Hawash. These men were alleged to be no ordinary killers. They were seemingly infamous for their alleged brutal attacks and for allegedly being involved at the center of grisly and unspeakable crimes. That didn't exactly put Terry in good company, And even though she was never charged, she was being treated as having committed just as heinous of a criminal act as those men had been accused. So she needed an attorney that could handle that. At the start of their client relationship, Terry's attorney's first job was convincing her to forego any and all media interviews. Everything she said was twisted against her, and she was constantly being portrayed horribly in the media. Silence would be her best weapon. It is often said, those who don't talk, walk. He was her lawyer, and he would also now act as her spokesperson of sorts, speaking for her in front of the media. On August 2, 2010, the missing persons investigation takes a step forward. Because of questions swirling around the landscaper and Dee Dee Spicer, a grand jury assembles to hear the sworn testimonies from people of interest who may have evidence against Terry. Among these people of interest are most notably Dee Dee, Terry's best friend, and Rudy, who accused her of asking him to kill her husband. Later in the week, several friends of Terry, as well as the principal of Skyline Elementary, are also called. A grand jury is a panel of seven people. The grand jury listens to the witnesses presented by the district attorney's office and, based on that evidence, may indict the defendant if five of the juries concur. The defendant or the defendant's attorney are not present during the grand jury process. If the grand jury panel determines, based upon the witness's testimony, a felony crime has been committed, the defendant is indicted. But what was unique about this grand jury is that it was unlikely that Terry was going to be indicted, at least in the eyes of Terry's defense team. 
Her lawyer knew that the prosecution would not have sufficient evidence to present to the grand jury because Kyron's investigation was not complete. It was still ongoing. They didn't have answers. They didn't have evidence to present. Kane is among the first people to give his official testimony. It's similar to what he told the police on the night Kyron disappeared, but there's a stronger focus on putting the blame on Terry. What's interesting to note is that Kane was not wearing his wedding ring during this hearing. After the first day of hearing, Terry's attorney spoke to the press waiting outside the courtroom, claiming his client was the subject of threats and that these hearings amounted to nothing more than a witch hunt. And he said this because the media's reporting on her was getting personal. During this time, TV news programs were displaying pictures of bikini-clad Terry from 2005, five years earlier, when she was a competing bodybuilder and juxtaposed them with paparazzi pictures of her current weight and disheveled appearance. Like Kyron's search and rescue efforts, the grand jury hearing was a media circus. Dozens of reporters swarmed the courthouse asking for comments from Kane, Desiree, and Terry. The hearings were meant to be discreet since it wasn't an official trial, but it was such a badly kept secret that everyone knew about it, and that was just one of three court appearances that Terry had to attend. The second was the divorce hearing that she had exclusively with Kane, and the third were the hearings about her being held in contempt of court for sharing sealed documents with Michael Cook. Later that month, on August 25th, Terry and her divorce attorney, Peter Bunch, arrived to the same courthouse for a hearing on the divorce proceedings. Kane, however, was not at this hearing, and only his lawyer arrived on his behalf. Reporters took note that Terry was still wearing her wedding ring. During the hearings, both sides made their cases to the judge about three particular topics. Keep in mind, this was just a scheduling hearing in order for the judge to set a later date in which both parties could begin their oral arguments. There were three topics discussed. One, Kane wanted to know that if in fact Terry had paid $250,000 to her attorney, where did she get it? It was troubling to him how she could afford hiring one of Oregon's most renowned criminal defense lawyers. Second, Terry wanted all the legal issues that Kane filed against her, including the divorce and contempt of court charge, postponed for up to two years. That would mean any legal ramifications wouldn't be announced until 2012. Why did Terry fight for this? Well, most likely because her attorney wanted to keep her out of any situation that would get her under oath. That way, Terry would not be forced to answer hard questions that could put her in a position of having to equivocate, take the fifth, or risk a perjury charge. A strategy when criminal prosecutors are reluctant to bring a case is to file a civil suit against the target so you can get discovery. You can discover documents, phone records, travel records, and cause that person to sit for a deposition. In a criminal case, the prosecutor is not entitled to discovery and cannot take the deposition of a criminal defendant. By filing a civil suit first, 
it's possible to create a lot of evidence, a lot of information that the criminal prosecutors can then use to fortify their case. Any good defense lawyer will try to derail that so their client is not subject to examination and production of documents or information to help the prosecutor. Third, Kane's lawyer insisted to the judge that Terry be held in contempt of court until the next hearing, but that motion was denied. Although it didn't seem like it, given the media fervor outside the courtroom, this particular hearing seemed to be going Terry's direction. Not only did the judge reject the contempt of court charge, but the request to proceed with the divorce was also rejected because Terry was unofficially a de facto suspect in an ongoing missing persons investigation. Having the divorce proceedings delayed bought Terry and her defense team enough time to build a strong defense argument. It also bought them time just in case Kane decided to drop the contempt charge or the search and rescue found Chiron or his remains and cleared Terry. Kane, as you might have imagined, was furious. His lawyer spoke to reporters outside the courthouse claiming that Terry's defense was built around stalling as much as possible in order to avoid, quote, possible self-incrimination. But then something changed. A few weeks later, Kane announced that he and his lawyers were going to drop the contempt of court charge against Terry. This is exactly what Terry's team had hoped for. By Kane dropping the charge, her attorney would use that to bolster his defense that his client was innocent. So why exactly did Kane and his lawyers drop the contempt of court charge? Court records did not disclose that information, but most likely, it may have been for two reasons. One, there were too many lawsuits filed by Kane against Terry, and the cost of paying his lawyers for each case was becoming too burdensome. Two, the contempt of court case was distracting Kyron's investigation. Kane was already taking Terry to court to end their marriage and to find out how she was able to pay for her attorney's retainer. Adding another lawsuit on top of those two would have just taken the spotlight even farther away from the search for his missing son. And that may have been exactly what Howes wanted, to allow him more time to develop a defense. Therefore, the judge canceled the September 21st hearing and ordered the parties to begin their oral arguments on October 7th regarding the other pending motions. However, Terry's divorce attorney, Peter Bunch, asked the court to hold in abeyance any discussion of dividing property, financial, child custody, or parental matters in the divorce during the criminal investigation of Kyron's disappearance. The reason for this was because Terry's lawyers believed they would not be able to sufficiently perform their duties while their client was under the national spotlight and under heavy media scrutiny. In other words, Terry's lawyers wanted to delay divorce proceedings until the media stopped hounding Terry and following her everywhere she went. Naturally, Kane's lawyers contested the delay 
and we're happy to appear in court on October 7th. In a statement on KGW8, a local news station in Portland, Kane clarified why he dropped the contempt of court charges, saying, It's an act of good faith on our part. It shows that we're serious about not wasting the court's time with side issues. We want to get the divorce wrapped up so we can deal with the important things and move forward. We need to get this wrapped up. There are bigger issues that need to be dealt with. And of course, he was talking about finding Chiron by any means necessary. Come Thursday, October 7th, Kane and his attorney, Laura Rackner, arrived at the county courthouse. They square off against Terry and her divorce attorney, Peter Bunch. Cameras were not permitted inside the courtroom, but reporters snuck in their phones and live-tweeted the oral arguments, letting the rest of the country in on what was happening inside the courtroom. Peter Bunch began his defense, and he did not hold back one bit, arguing that Terry was the subject of more than one criminal investigation as a launching point. He argued the following. The state has the ability to obtain every single bit of information that is produced in this case, and that is outside the bounds of what it could do were this proceeding not occurring. It is fundamentally unfair for Kiara and for Ms. Horman for me to be hamstrung in the divorce case for the information I have compared to what they have. The publicity that's going on is not being driven by Ms. Horman. It's being driven by Mr. Horman. When he tells national media, there's no doubt Ms. Horman is involved. If Mr. Horman is really interested in what's best for the child, then Mr. Horman wouldn't object to any visitation by this child's mother. We'll concede Mr. Horman can have the house right now. Mrs. Horman is going to lose money. What was difficult about this divorce hearing was it brought up the issues of custody. And if you remember in 2004, Desiree returned from Canada and did not seek full custody of Chiron. This brought back a number of painful memories for her. Terry had a conversation with me asking if I could take custody of Chiron and I told her, I want custody of my kids, but Kane assured me that it is not an option. It makes me sick that I didn't push it harder, or that I knew in my gut that something was wrong. I tried to get Kane to give me custody. I should have fought harder, and I would go back in a second to fix it if I could. I will never in this lifetime forgive myself. Never. But it seems that down the line, Terry had a change of heart because she not only wanted to take full custody of Kyron, but she wanted to adopt him. Here's what she had to say about that. I did not ask her to take custody. When he would go down for long stints, like a summer or a spring break or something, he'd come back and he'd be kind of sad. And so I asked him, do you want to call your mom? and just check in with her, and yes, and they would talk back and forth. And he mentioned to me one time that he wanted to, um, to go live with his, his mom. And I said, okay, well, if that's something that you feel strongly about, let's go talk to your dad, or you can talk to your mom about it. And I told Kane about it, but he, um, 
he, I never knew what he and Desiree discussed about it. Did you want her to take him? No. In fact, I had spoken to one of, uh, before all this happened, when he was a little bit younger, I had spoken to one of um, uh, the family, his side of the family, have an attorney about adopting him. I wanted to adopt him. And I wasn't able to do that because, obviously, she's a biological mother. And yet, several years later, Kiara would find herself in the same tug-of-war between the guardianship of two parents. Except this time, it was under devastating circumstances. After trying to convince the court to allow Terry custody over Kiara, Peter Bunch went on to argue that Kane and Rackner had access to criminal investigation materials involving Terry. Therefore, they had an advantage over her, since she was expected to plead the fifth. Now, you may have heard the term plead the fifth from movies and TV shows. What that means is that it asserts one's right against self-incrimination under the Fifth Amendment. Although this is an inalienable right, and the jury is often instructed not to infer any guilt or innocence based on someone asserting their Fifth Amendment rights. Common sense tells you that the jury concludes that people who have nothing to hide, hide nothing. And when someone seeks protection under the Fifth Amendment for fear of self-incrimination, they're going to fill in the blanks to the detriment of the individual seeking protection. So basically... It's when someone refuses to testify under oath in court on the basis that their testimony might be used as evidence against the witness in order to convict him or her of a criminal offense. And that's what Terry was expected to do, considering she and her legal team were juggling multiple cases. When it was time for Kane's attorney to make her case, She honed in on Terry's inability to raise a child, especially after her stepson went missing on her watch. Arguing that Terry is an emotionally disturbed individual, focused on her own needs rather than the needs of Kiara or Kyron. She also suggested a concern that any contact Terry has with Kiara would be detrimental, giving the media circus that surrounded her. She even went on to claim that Kiara had hugely benefited from being removed from her mother. But that wasn't all. Kane's attorney went on the offensive, suggesting that Terry might suffer from an undiagnosed personality disorder or a variation of some form of emotional disturbance. This would have explained her erratic behavior over the summer and why she may have organized Kyron's alleged abduction. It's important to note that she made these allegations without bringing any medical evidence to support them. Nor did she analyze Terry's history or get specific with regard to symptoms of a personality disorder. Had she done that, it may have strengthened her argument, but to the judge, this was just getting out of hand. By the end of this court battle, the judge had had enough with the baseless allegations and the back and forth between the two former spouses. In what appeared like a win to the defense, the judge ordered the case to resume on January 15, 2011, in what he believed would be an ample time for parties to, quote, cool off. 
His reasoning was that a few months would allow either Cain or Terry to rethink their court battles and would have also given enough time for the search and rescue effort to find Chiron. Cain's biggest ace up his sleeve of why Terry shouldn't have access to her daughter was because he feared she could have witnessed Terry harming her older brother. In a court affidavit, Kane wrote, it causes great pain to wonder if Kiara was with Respondent on June 4, 2010 and witnessed some unimaginable act of horror. Until Respondent begins answering questions about the events of June 4, 2010, I cannot support any contact between her and Kiara, even if supervised. Terry's attorney responded to the affidavit by asserting that as a mother, Terry is Kiara's primary caregiver, and that a child, especially as a toddler, would need a mother during its years of early development, even if it's just supervised visits. It's June 2, 2011. It's been a year since Kyron disappeared, and investigators are no closer to finding him than that fatal day at the science fair. While the drama is playing out in court battles for this family, the hope of finding Kyron is steadily slipping away. Sheriff Dan Stanton formally announces that the Kyron Task Force, which has led the search effort since day one, would officially disband on July 1st. In other words, Kane and Desiree had only one month left of the state and federal government's resources to help find Kyron, and then they would be on their own. To ease the pain, Sheriff Stanton assured the public that a lead detective from the sheriff's office was going to work full-time to continue investigating Kyron's whereabouts. However, the FBI, National Guard, and other state-supported rescue teams must end their search efforts. By July 11th, the missing persons case of Kyron Horman had been reduced to a local issue. No reason was given as to why this happened, but one can only imagine that it had to do with funding. With the court battles between Kane and Terry having to wait until the new year, you might be asking, where was Desiree Young in all of this? Well, it turns out that Desiree was mostly helping the sheriff's office in finding Kyron. She also helped lead and organize several search parties in the woods behind Skyline Elementary. When she wasn't joining organized search efforts, Desiree was planning something on her own, something that would change the course of her son's investigation. It's May 31, 2012. Now two years after Kyron disappeared, the intense divorce case between Kane and Terry is still delayed, and the local search effort has turned up no results. But on this day... Desiree drops the bombshell news that she's filing a civil suit against Terry, accusing her of custodial interference. Under Oregon law, custodial interference involves keeping a person from their legal custodian permanently or for a protracted period. But because this was a civil suit, it differed from a criminal indictment and therefore it wasn't brought on by prosecutors. Normally, there's a lower burden of proof to find someone guilty in a civil suit compared to a criminal trial, and therefore, 
it was more likely to win a lawsuit against Terry in a civil suit as opposed to getting a verdict in a criminal trial. What was so shocking about her civil suit is that she demanded $10 million in damages for Terry's alleged custodial interference. This also included a reservation to amend to include punitive damages later. Upon the release of this civil lawsuit, Stephen Howes resorted to his old tactics and tried to delay it because Kyron's investigation was still ongoing, even if the state and federal agents disbanded it. However, the judge assigned to Desiree's lawsuit denied that motion and allowed the initial hearing to proceed. Whether Desiree would be able to prove accountability for custodial interference was what her lawyers were hoping to prove. It wasn't impossible, but at the time that Desiree was preparing for court, the sheriff's office was not able to assist in finding any direct link to the vanishing of Kyron Horman. If anything, the only circumstantial evidence that Desiree's lawyers had seemed to strengthen her defense. Her lawyer argued that the suspicious man in the white trunk, the cell phone signal near Sauvy Island, the alleged murder-for-hire plot, the Didi allegedly buying an untraceable phone, were nothing but fabrications spun by a biased media and an overworked sheriff's department all eager to find a perpetrator. But that's not how the law works. Howes knew Desiree would have an extremely difficult time attempting to prove Terry's culpability. Desiree also alleged intentional infliction of emotional distress, also very difficult to prove. But with the claim of custodial interference, evidence concerning Terry's neglect and history of alcoholism, it could be argued, put Kyron's life in danger. On October 5, 2012, the civil lawsuit against Terry brought forth by Desiree began. One of the first people to be questioned was Dee Dee Spicer, who finally had the opportunity to tell her side of the story to a court about where she really was on June 4, 2010 from 11.30 to 1 p.m. This was her opportunity to set the record straight about allegedly purchasing an untraceable phone for Terry. But instead, Dee Dee pled the fifth 142 times. She insisted that she was gardening in Germantown all morning long, and beyond that, invoked the Fifth Amendment. To many people, it instantly raised a cloud of suspicion on whether or not she was telling the truth. In response to Dee Dee pleading the fifth 142 times, Desiree's lawyer filed a motion that would force Dee Dee to answer additional questions. He argued that Didi may not plead the fifth in order to hide knowledge about a friend's criminal conduct. Desiree and her lawyer had hoped to squeeze some kind of usable information or even a confession out of Didi. Desiree, unfortunately, was alone in this legal process in that she didn't have much of Kane's support. While they remained united in front of the cameras, privately, it was a very different story. Kane was in the middle of two legal proceedings against Terry, their divorce, 
and acquiring her financial records, he had little or no time to help Desiree. And the truth is that while Desiree actively assisted investigators, Kane was not as willing to cooperate. For the past two years, the sheriff's office scoured his home and checked every inch of that property. But that invitation only extended to the sheriff's office. To outside investigators, not so much. Many people highly criticized Kane for this. He insisted that investigators are always welcome to search his home, specifically his backyard. But it's off-limits to outside parties. It raised the question, why would Kane not want as many forensic professionals to scour through his backyard as possible? Apparently, it was out of concerns for privacy and because investigators had initially requested not just to search the backyard, but to excavate it completely. That's where he drew the line. I have an open invitation with law enforcement and the search and rescue teams, the certified search and rescue teams, to search my property any day, anytime. When I was called, I said no to the private search, but I immediately said, and I will continue to say right now, anytime, anytime the sheriff's office and the search and rescue teams want to come with their dogs. It's already, my property, I'll qualify with, my property's been searched more than the school has probably. And my invitation is open, always open. Now, to be clear, Desiree doesn't think that Kane had some involvement in Kyron's disappearance, but she does think that the backyard could have been a place where Terry might have allegedly hid evidence. I want oh, to be very I believe clear. it would have been a great opportunity for Terry. She wouldn't have been seen by anybody. Some people took the position that if there was even a possibility that Terry hid evidence of Kyron in his backyard, wouldn't a concerned father have dug so deep until there just wasn't even any dirt left? If there was even the slightest chance that Kyron's remains are buried deep in the backyard, why wouldn't Kane allow investigators to search it properly? Well, he claims he did. He claims that his property had been searched more than the school, but a thorough excavation never took place. Kane has his reasons, but it continues to demonstrate an ongoing pattern of how culpable his parents look. When asked if she had failed Kyron, Desiree held back her tears and nodded, yes. To hear a parent admit that concerning a missing child is absolutely heartbreaking. No parent should carry that burden. No parent should have to endure that guilt. And for Desiree Young, there was a lot she needed to endure because the road ahead was going to get a lot harder before it got any easier. For the remainder of 2012 going into 2013, the multiple lawsuits against Terry from Kane and Desiree remained stagnant. Neither party could prove that Terry did anything. It was becoming increasingly difficult to land an indictment. The lawyers knew that, the judge knew that, the jury knew that. Witnesses like Dee Dee Spicer and Rudy Sanchez were cooperative to an extent, refusing and claiming allegations that couldn't be corroborated. The allegations were nothing but he said, she said statements, and the hearings kept getting delayed again and again and again. While the court battles were going in circles, the rising cost of lawyer fees just kept adding up. The media circus wouldn't give them an inch of privacy. Their lives were being exposed frequently on national television, and even worse, after three years since Kyron vanished, the search effort, now only comprised of a few dozen volunteers, was going nowhere. 
Desiree was a realist. Even with charging Terry with custodial interference, it would have been a long shot before the judge granted her $10 million in damages. She knew her lawsuit was not going to end the way she had hoped, which is why she had to make a difficult decision. On July 30, 2013, Desiree and her lawyer held a press conference where she announced that she was going to drop her civil suit against Terry Horman. Her reasoning? The lawsuit was not able to move forward without information that the sheriff's office would not release because of the ongoing investigation. In her statement, she said, This decision today does not mean that I will be giving up looking for Chiron. My will and determination has only strengthened over the past three years. But despite Desiree dropping her lawsuit, Kane's court battle with her was still ongoing, and neither of them were going to wave a white flag. Terry may have moved away, but in the coming years, she'd have to return to the spotlight and face a legal judgment. Her attorney may have done his best to delay subsequent hearings, but the case against Terry Horman was just beginning. Did the judge successfully grant Kane a divorce from Terry? Did the investigation reach a breaking point several years after Kyron mysteriously disappeared? And was Terry going to prison for her alleged involvement? These questions and more will be answered on next week's episode. And trust me, this is going to be one finale you do not want to miss. This is Into Thin Air, The Mysterious Disappearance of Kyron Horman. I'm Dr. Phil. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.